My name is Zach. I am the new shepherd of Young Professionals, and I'm really excited about starting this ministry. Uh, Despite my balding head, I am a young professional. I'm a part of this community, and we recognize that, that this is often a missed demographic of the church at large, that when you leave college, it is good luck from there on out. And we just feel that there are people in our church that would be a part of this demographic that we just want to connect with, give community. And so if that's you, if you're a young professional and and the way we're defining that very loosely right now is kind of post-college, think 22, 23, and then kind of moving into your early 30s, uh, married, single, engaged, dating, whatever. Uh, This is just a demographic that we know gets kind of glossed over in churches and we're really excited to connect with. So if that's you, if you're listening and you would consider yourself a young professional, I would love to hear from you. I'd love for you to reach out. Um, You can find my email on the website. It's zach.zienka at fullertonfree.com. Please don't send me spam. (laughs) Um, But please reach out. I would would love to connect with you. And uh, we've got a survey we've created to just see what are the needs and what are desires for people in this demographic. What are the needs for community? So um, if that's you, please reach out. Our text today, um, from James 4.11 through 5.6, if you listened to the reading of this scripture, there may have been words or phrases or ideas here that hit very sharply, Uh, words that felt very intense, things that if someone was standing on the corner in downtown Brea and reading this aloud, we might feel embarrassed to associate ourselves with them. Uh, These feel like words from a prophet hitting things like judgment and wealth and money and boastful plans, that these are often things that we like to avoid in our scripture. We like to focus on the Ephesians 2s and the Romans And these are often the areas where we get a little uncomfortable. We feel a little squirmish in our seats as we hear someone talking about our money, about our plans, about how we perceive other people. And I actually want us to approach the text today and say, actually, this should be one of the easiest uh, parts of scripture that we encounter with because it is so clear and doesn't require too much of our theological wrestling and understanding as maybe some of the other texts of scripture that we love, that there is some very clear um, aspects of this text in asking us to, to live our life like Jesus. And so the way we're going to do this is, is we're going um, to look at these different portions of the text by the way in which we perceive our world. And so what we're going to do is, is James is going to, going to call out what I'm going to call our present perception, the way in which we assume the world works. When we look outside and interact with people, we uh, have this self-centered idea that, that we know how to make judgments on other people. We know what they believe. We know why they're doing what they're doing. We know who their character is. And And we can make these judgments about people and we have perceptions on how important our wealth is, how important that is to our safety and security, how uh, in control we are of our own plans, that that is our present perception, that that is the way in which our world tells us this is how it functions. The rich rule, they're in charge, they have full authority, Um, you got to make plans, you have control. And James is going to call out this as our present perception. He's going to say there is a different way to consider this. I'm going to call that our kingdom reality. That because of the cross, because of Jesus' resurrection, because of his inauguration of the kingdom, 
that there is a new way this world functions with Jesus in charge, with Jesus as king, that there is an upside down nature to a world, which is why Jesus can come along and say, um, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble, things that we would not consider when we would look at our world, that those are truths. But when we consider the kingdom reality, we do see that this is how the world functions in light of Jesus. And James is going to ask us to consider that perception. It's going to take work. It's going to take rubbing our eyes. It's going to take uh, taking logs out of our eyes to see this and consider the ways in which the cross and the resurrection has changed our world. And I think this text here, verse 11 through 12, is it's speaking about judgment and that you and I don't have that position to make judgment. This is going to be the key text that sits over the rest of our passage today. In fact, I was sharing in our teaching team meeting, I feel like this would be almost impossible to teach through James if, this, if these two verses were not here. Because James is going to say, look, you cannot make judgments on others. You cannot speak evil against them. And then these next sections of James, it's going to feel like he's doing that very thing, that he is making judgments, that he is calling out our boastful plans and our wealth and our riches and our trust in that. But the first thing before we even consider any of that is to consider our own self. That there is an internal perspective that must happen before we start thinking of others. Because I would imagine, in fact, when I first read through this text, there is a tendency to um, read about people who make boastful plans, read about people who trust in their own wealth, and to start thinking of other people. So we can start putting names in our own heads and to not first consider ourselves. And I think that is the key portion here, is these verse 11 through 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. One who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. James, again, Ask us to consider our words, that there is something that can be so damaging about our tongue and the way we say things. Do not speak evil. In fact, if I were to put maybe a more modern translation, I would consider the danger of our keyboard, the danger of a screen, the danger of just being able to send out an email, put a post on Facebook and Twitter, and just hide behind that and to speak evil, that there is great danger in our tongue. There's great danger in our keyboard, in our screen, that in that, as James says here, if by doing so, speaking evil and making judgments, you speak evil against the law and judge the law. I think what we have to ask here is James has has given us a formula. He says, if you speak evil against your brother, if you judge your brother, that equals speaking evil against the law and judges the law. And so what I want to do is I want to break down this this formula here. And the first part of that is what does James mean by the law? What does James mean by the law? Um, I think there are some possible interpretations. I think one of the things it could be is that he's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the Torah, um, the ways in which God's people uh, set their lives, the structures they built to say, this is how we're going to live. This is the law, you know, the kosher food, Sabbath, circumcision, all these things that they did to arrange their life to bring honor to God. Um, Often when Paul talks about the law, that is what he means. But James doesn't give us much context here uh, to say that, to say for certainty that's what what he is meaning by the law. I think what he means is James perceiving the world in light of Jesus and knowing what Jesus has commanded to, to love neighbor, love God, love brother, love sister, 
is that that is the essence of the law, right? Jesus was asked, what, what is the law? How would you summarize it? And he said, love neighbor, love God. Those two things are intrinsically connected. And I think this is what James means because even if he is considering the Torah and considering the Old Testament, Jesus said, hey, that's the summary of it all. If you were to just take all that huge text that we so often don't want to read and summarize it, that's what it means. Love neighbor, love God. And I think this is what James is talking about when he says the law is that there is some commandments from God that we are called to obey that shape us more and more like Jesus and that what happens is when we place ourselves in a position of making judgments against people, making full statements, full condemning remarks about someone, that in some way we are speaking evil against the law, that that we are saying that we are in the position to do so. I want us to consider, um, one of my favorite things to do when when I teach is, is to go back to Genesis. I feel like Genesis has the foundation for so much. And when we look at this, I think one portion of Genesis that we consider is Genesis chapter three. That Adam and Eve were placed in the garden and they were given uh, full rule and reign. That was why they were created, to rule and reign over the earth. And that God said, under my authority, under what I have declared as good, you get to go out and make decisions about the world, rule and reign over it, be fruitful. But there's this tree that is the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of it. And I think there's, there's a lot of different ways to understand what is, what is the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Was it just God trying to put something there to give him a test? Although James tells us God doesn't tempt us. What was the tree? And I think what the tree represents is our desire for own autonomy. Our desire to make decisions on what is good and what is evil. Because the whole story of Genesis, God had made the decision. God was the one who said, this is good. I made this. This is great. This is awesome. And God's the one who decided when things weren't good. Like when Adam was alone, he said, oh, this, this isn't good. God is the one who makes the decisions on what is good and what is evil. And the tree represented our desire to usurp that from God. Our desire to take that and make our own decisions of what is good and what is evil. And I think each time that we make a judgment on a brother and sister, that we make statements of who they are, that we condemn them, that we are taking from the tree yet again, that we are usurping that authority from God to define this is what I think is good, this is what I think is evil. We're placing ourselves in a position that only God has. As James says, there is only one lawgiver and judge. You are not in that position. And I think what's hard for us to understand is that it is so easy for myself to make those judgments, but I don't receive them well, right? Like we don't like when others judge us, but we are so quick to do that. Um, Malcolm Gladwell, who's a brilliant author, brilliant speaker, uh, wrote a book recently called Talking to Strangers. And in the book, he explores this idea that you and I are really bad at seeing someone that we don't really know and assessing them. That we're just really bad at that. We, we, when we encounter strangers, when we encounter people we don't really know, that the way our brain starts to make a story around them, a narrative of who they are, we're actually really bad at that. This is what he says in his book. I I think this is so good. He says, the conviction that we know others better than they know us and that we might have insights about them that they lack, but not vice versa, 
leads us to talk when we would do well to listen and to be less patient than we ought to be when others express the conviction that they are the ones who are being misunderstood or judged unfairly. I think what Gladwell is saying is that um, you and I have this conviction that we have insights that as we look around, we're like, oh man, I, I know what they need to hear. They, they need to hear it from me and they need to hear exactly what's going on in their life and, and how they're being perceived and their character. And I have the answers, but not vice versa, is what he says. We never consider that we would hate the very thing that we're doing to someone else. And I love what he says here because it sounds like James, he says, it leads us to talk when we would do well to listen. Think of what James has said before. Be slow to speak, quick to listen. And that we are often not patient when someone else says, I'm being misunderstood. I'm being misunderstood. I think in our world recently, there are lots of people speaking up on pain and frustration that they're going through. And often we are quick to make judgments and build the whole story of who they are. And they might be standing there being like, you're not listening. You don't understand And sometimes we are not good at listening. And I think what James is saying here is that when we make judgments, when we um, make concluding and condemning statements about someone, we are replacing the very position that God alone stands in. And judgment is different. I mean, there's, there's discernment, there's accountability, right? There is something about discerning and, and, and um, making wise choices about the people that we surround our lives with. There's, there's something to be said about accountability, but all that is done in relationship, right? That is done uh, with people that you are close to, who ha- you're having open communication with to talk about the things in their life. Um, but there is something different about judgment. It often leaves no room for grace and no room for different interpretation. That it is just, this is who this person is, and this is what I know about them. And James says, when you do that, you are putting yourself a position that only God is in. He knows our hearts, and we rarely know someone else's. And so that would be our, our, our present perception, right? That we can make these judgments. In our kingdom reality, I think what this means is that the first thing is we don't be comforted by our own perspective, that we do not consider ourselves to have the inerrant, infallible perspective. We don't get that, only scripture and God gets to be that. That we be receptive to listen, be receptive to change. And with that comes humility. We think of our pillars, a call to humility. And again, it goes back to what Gladwell said that often we don't like when someone else does that to us, but we usually are quick to hear the humble perspective. When someone approaches us with humility, um, bringing um, a sense of that they're, hey, I don't know, I just want to tell you this, and accountability, that we're more receptive to that than absolute judgments and absolute statements. And I think the good news in this, that James says is, hey, there is one law and judge, and it's not you. And I think that's good news because that takes the weight of judging and the weight of, of looking at others and assessing who they are. It takes it off of us and it rests on God. He bears that burden. You do not. I actually think that is really relieving that I don't have to do that, 
that God is the judge and that rests on him alone. The final portion of this text um, in 12, it says, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you? And that launches us into our next section here in uh, verse 13 through 17, because James is actually going to answer his supposed rhetorical question. Who are you? When we get into verse 13, it says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such town, spend a year, trade, and make a profit. Verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? And then here's his answer to our question. Who are you? Who are you to judge? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. When the quarantine first hit and um, we were all forced into our homes, I, I noticed in myself as well and peers around me that a book of scripture that a lot of people turned to was Ecclesiastes. Um, it was a book we actually went through with our youth here at church. We went through Ecclesiastes pretty early on in the quarantine. And I think there is something comforting in a text that often feels cynical. It's a, it's a book that comes right after Proverbs, which is very like, hey, if you just do this, this is how your life will go. It's very, very optimistic. And then Ecclesiastes comes along and says, eh, it's not that easy. Our world is different. And over and over again, Ecclesiastes, it's the same language that James uses here of our life is like a mist. Or in the way Ecclesiastes often gets translated, our life in this world is vanity or it's an enigma. It's a mystery. It's something we can't quite grasp like a mist. And I think that these words can feel cynical, but there's good news within it. And within James telling us that you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes, that our own life is a mystery. It's something we can't quite grasp onto and understand. And so James is saying, if that is true, if, if that's who we are, then how can we go about making plans and knowing exactly how our life is going to be? know exactly what's going to happen. If our life is like a mist, if it's a mystery, we cannot do these things. Um, I've been thinking about uh, probably the worst gift that could have been given this year and something my wife has that I don't think she ever uses anymore, which is a 2020 planner. And it's just, just, it just sits on the shelf. There's no use to it this year, right? Uh, because our life has drastically changed. Plans that we've had have disappeared like mist. Things we thought would look like here in August have, I mean, I didn't think I'd be in a room that's very empty teaching this message. Our life is a mist. And I actually think there's something comforting in that because if that's our reality that, that we don't quite understand what's going on, um, there is someone who does. There is someone who does know our plans and know his plans and that is the Lord. Though our life can be a mystery, God knows. And that launches here into this next part here that says, James says that you are a mist that appears for a little while and vanishes. So instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So don't boast in your arrogance. This is this important movement here in James as we consider the kingdom perspective. Our our present perception is to say, we can make plans. We can control our own calendar. We can go about our lives in the way that we desire and want. And James says, that is not the case. There is someone who has a greater will that is moving in our world, and and that's God. 
the first thing that we consider is the Lord's will. And, and he says here that it says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we, we will live and do this or that. And I think the first thing we have to say is that this isn't a magic incantation. You don't get to just say, if the Lord wills, and then continue on with our own plans. It isn't like, um, you know, the way in which we end a prayer with, in Jesus' name, amen, right? That doesn't get us immediately on page with Jesus just because we said it. That this is about a perspective shift about the Lord's will. And I think the first thing it does is it puts our life in God's hands, When we're always considering God's will, we are putting things in his hands. We are receptive to chains. We are receptive to different movements in our life. We are going before him like Isaiah and saying, here I am, send me, do something. And when things change and when things get dramatic and when things shift in our lives, um, we have the perception to say, okay, clearly God is doing something. And we let our plans loose in our hands that they sit loosely there for God to do something different with them. And I think the other thing that asking about Lord's will is it forces us to consider our plans and if they are in line with the kingdom. I think often we make um it really complicated when it comes to God's will. And that's not to say that um, there isn't empathy for us who wrestle with what we're supposed to do, what college we're supposed to go to, what job we're supposed to take. These are major decisions in our lives. But often I think we make it so complicated hoping for God to send something so clear about his will when he already has. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's loving neighbor. It's loving God. It's the perspective that Jesus has given us. It's the way in which he's calling us to follow him. That is God's will. And so when we consider our plans and we look at the things that we have set out to do, if they don't fall in line with the Sermon on the Mount, they don't fall in line with um, Jesus' way of life and the way that the kingdom is shaping us and changing us, then, then we look at it and we say, yeah, this probably isn't in God's will. And so I think when we consider God's will, it's changing the way we view our plans, changing the way we view their purpose and what they're doing. And the last part here of this text says, whoever knows the right thing and fails to do it, for him, it is a sin. A few years ago, my wife and I, we, we were living in Arizona. Uh, we, we both met here in California at Biola, and then we moved to Arizona and we got married. And we were living in a small apartment and something that I'd always wanted was an aquarium. I love aquariums. I think they're fascinating. If I could have a pass to the Long Beach Aquarium, I think it would be better than Disneyland. And so I wanted to get something in our apartment. I'm thinking like a giant tank, just something massive with incredible amounts of fish. And we got it down. I I convinced her for a five gallon tank. So it was a little dinky thing that just sat on our kitchen counter. And we went, we got to pick out the fish and what we wanted in there and all the, um, all the decorations. And it was this fun little project of something I cared about and working on it together. But I wanted more in the tank. I wanted something unique in there. And I was doing research on fun things to put in the tank. And one of the things I thought and found was this thing called an African frog. And it's this little water frog that mostly lives in the water. It'll kind of hop around in there, but it, it's, it's all water frog. There's a better word for that. But I knew I wanted it, but I knew Alexa would hate it, would absolutely hate this frog, be disgusted by it. And so I knew I shouldn't have done it. 
But I went out of my way. I left work early. I went to PetSmart. I picked up the frog. I got home before she did. And I got it all set up. And I just kind of waited for her to get home to notice the frog. Because at that point, it would be too late for anything to change. And she was not very happy about it. <laughs> and, and, she, and I have my permission from her to, to tell this story. And a few days go by with this frog. And she hates it. She doesn't even want to look in the tank anymore to look at the fish. And I'm in a staff meeting at the church I was working at. And I look at my phone and I have nine missed calls from her. And I'm thinking something awful has happened. She's in a car accident. Something bad has happened. Eight missed or nine missed calls. And so I leave the staff meeting and I'm calling her. I'm like, oh my gosh, what's going on? What's going on? And I hear her on the phone, the frog got out of the tank. The frog got out of the tank. And she is weeping and crying. The frog had left the fish tank and is hopping around our apartment and chasing her around. And she's freaking out and she's calling me. She doesn't know what to do. I'm trying to tell her to pick up the frog, which I know there's no way that she's going to do that. And eventually she actually opens the front door of her apartment and the frog is hopping outside. It's Phoenix. So it's, you know, a hundred billion degrees outside. And Alexa is crying and weeping and our neighbor comes out and is like, oh my gosh, what is wrong? Something awful must be happening. Alexa's like, it's the frog. The frog has gotten out. And our neighbor just goes, reaches, picks up the frog and puts it in the tank. And the, the frog died a few hours later. But I knew exactly what I was not supposed to do. And yet I still did it. And Alexa faced all the consequences of my dumb decision, despite knowing exactly what I shouldn't have done. James here says that you often know what you are supposed to do, and yet sometimes we fail to do it. And I think that launches us into this last part here in James 5, 1 through 6. Because although it might be one of our least favorite topics to hear in a church, our least favorite topics to consider, our scripture has no lack of content when it comes to talking about money. There is no excuse for us to be like, well, the scripture's a little loose on what it means about, no, there is a lot in our scripture about wealth and how we use it and how we consider the kingdom with our money. In fact, money is one of the, the main things Jesus spoke about to his followers. And I think when we read one of these texts, um, one of the first things that we tend to do is we try to spiritualize it. Um, we try to, to move past wealth and maybe think of, of different ways to consider what this text might mean. But I actually want us to first really consider this and think about the ways in which we build up and trust in our own money, the way we hoard different things and put our trust in it. Because I really think there's something important about this text and what it might say to us as people living in North Orange County. Money grasps our hearts in ways that we often can't imagine. I think there's a reason why in Matthew 6, when Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money. I think there's a very clear reason he chose money. I think we might think that uh, Jesus could have picked any other topic to put it in there between contrasting God and something else. But I think there's a reason he selected money because it calls us and seizes us to devotion unlike anything else. It demands our allegiance in ways that other things just sometimes don't. But there is something about hoarding up wealth and putting our trust in it that eats at our very soul and pulls us away from God. I mean, Jesus, I mean, James here gives some intense language, right? Your riches have rotten, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, which is interesting because physically those things don't corrode um, and it's eating at you like fire that there is something about it that, that can tear at our own soul 
if we are not careful with how we use it and how we view it and the way in which we store it up and put our trust in it. Money grasps us in ways that we often don't consider. Our present perception is to say that wealth and money is something to put our trust in, something to give us peace and assurance. But we know from people who are very wealthy that surround us that sometimes they aren't the people at most peace, right? But there's something that still builds up anxiety with hoarding and grabbing money. And I think this message is really important to us and has to cut through so much to get to people who live honestly, in a very wealthy area. I think it's something that just has to be said. We live in Orange County, one of the wealthiest areas in the whole country. That all around us, whether or not you would consider yourself wealthy, that all around us there is wealth. And it creates almost an incubator of thinking that hoarding and storing up treasures is something we can do. Um, There's a book that I read recently that I think speaks to this super well, and it's by someone who attends our church, uh, Dr. Greg Tanelsoff. And it's this book here called I Told Me So. And it's about self-deception in the Christian life. I highly recommend this read, especially along with James, as we think about our own life and what changes can be made. And in this book, uh, Dr. Tanelsoff as he's looking at the ways in which we deceive ourselves and how is that possible? How is it possible that we have beliefs and, um, and systems of values in our own life, but sometimes we don't live that out? How is it that we self-deceive ourselves? What can cause that? And one of the things that he talks about in this book is that our environment can lead to that. That if you and I living in Orange County, um, where, it is, where wealth is all around us, it makes it so much easier to hoard and to put trust in money because everyone else around us is doing that. It puts us in an environment where a text like this makes it so difficult to reach through to us. And in the book, he talks about this idea of, you know, like if you go on a mission trip to a third world country and and you're out there and you're you're seeing wealth used in a very different way, And you come home and usually there's a tendency to be like, I'm going to change what I'm doing. I'm going to change the way I'm living, not trusting in money as much. But come three weeks later and nothing has changed. Because we exist in an environment that forces us and pushes us to get rid of those ideas that we don't need to put our trust in money. And so you and I have to actually work harder to really consider the meaning of this text more than anyone else because there are so many barriers in our lives, so many things pressuring us to say, no, no, there is something valuable about money and putting our trust in it. And I think if we move into the, um, this portion here, I mean, James does talk about hoarding, you know, laying up your treasures here on the last days. But there is, um, that you and I are the ones who decide what's valuable. That that's placed on us. I mean, we were joking in our, our teaching team meeting that, um, that a few months ago, toilet paper was more valuable than gold, right? I mean, there was people who were hoarding the toilet paper and, and people were desperate for it. And we attributed value to something that we had no reason to hoard. I mean, every person said, hey, if people just bought toilet paper like normal, it would have never happened. But people freaked out and they started hoarding it from others and taking away from people who needed it. 
And we created this system of, of, I have all this toilet paper and you don't. And it was so silly that we cared about something that we wipe our butt with, you know, that we attributed more worth to that than gold. That you and I are, can so easily decide what's valuable and can so easily take that away from others. And the important part here too in James is how these people that he's writing to have become wealthy. Because again, I mean, you read Ecclesiastes 5, and I don't have time to go through it right now, but Ecclesiastes 5 talks about, hey, there are people who are just gifted with wealth, that God sometimes just gifts people with wealth, and that there's an importance to using that well and being wise with that and being generous with that and loving God through that gift. There is something valuable about that. But in this text, um, James is calling out the people who have built up their wealth off the backs of others. Those who, and he says in verse four, behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. Basically, you have not paid them. You are, are basically taking what their work has done and you're keeping it on your own. He says, when you do that, they are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord, that God hears them. And this, um, this desire of God that we do not um, take from others and that we do not defraud others or cheat others, I mean, that's been built into the very DNA of God's people. Deuteronomy 24, 14 through 15 says, never take advantage of poor and destitute laborers, whether they are a fellow Israelite or foreigners living in your towns. You must pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and they're counting on it. If you don't, they might cry out to the Lord against you and it would be counted against you as sin. It's similar, similar language to James that they are crying out to you. It's the, it's the same language when Abel is killed and, and Genesis says that his blood is crying out to God. It's the same language from, uh, from Exodus when the Israelites in their, in their slavery are crying out to God to be released from that. That we have to consider the ways in which we conduct our life and our business. Are there people that I'm cheating? Are there people that I'm defrauding? Are there people that I'm taking away from their hard work to build up my own uh, wealth and my own trust and my own um, way of life? Are there people that I'm supporting that are doing that? I mean, these are, these are hard things that James is telling us that bring real application to our life to consider here. Because here's the thing is that these people, when we do this, they are crying out to God and God will listen and God will act. I think often when we read the stories of something like Exodus, we are so quick to put ourselves in the, in the shoes of the Israelites when sometimes the first thing we might need to do is to consider ourselves as the Egyptians first. To consider reading the scripture in ways in which we might be the people at an advantage. We might be the people who are in a position um, of wealth and power and reading the text in that way. Because God cares about the people who are cheated. He cares about those who are defrauded and he will hear their cries. And here's where I think the good news is of this text. I know it's, it's a lot. There's, there may not feel uh, very gracious in this text, but there is good news in this. You see, you and I, we live in this paradox of the gospel that the first thing that one of the things that we have to consider is that we are sinful, that we, um, that we live in total depravity. And that at first does not feel like good news. And sometimes these texts of James do not feel like good news. They feel really intense. But we always have to consider that first 
before we recognize that, that we are being renewed, that God has given us a gift of grace. And I think the beauty in this is that we do not be, need to be enslaved to these things anymore. We do not need to be enslaved to our own plans, to the desire to judge others. We do not need to be enslaved to our own money, to wealth. We don't have to put up an image of the people around us to say that I, I have wealth and status, that Christ frees us from that. that. Those things have no hold on our life. They have no hold on our soul anymore, that Jesus has defeated that and has bursted into our world through the cross and through the resurrection and given us new life. Those things do not hold you anymore. And the real thing here in this is that we have treasures in Christ. I mean, that's why James is so passionate about this. He says, when you hold on to these things, when you hold on to your plans, when you hold on to your wealth and putting trust in that, you miss out on the treasures in Christ. You miss out on the love and the compassion and the ways in which Jesus can move on our life to show love and compassion to others, that that is the real treasure that we get to experience. Jesus has freed us from that. And you have the very same opportunity this week to let loose your plans, to let go of of things that you are hoarding and things that you are putting your trust in and place it in the one who is not a mist, place it in the one who is the true judge, and let him be your treasure. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for these hard words of James. Lord, they cut to our core. And Lord, may they do that. May we not leave our TV screen today and not feel your presence. Lord, you are there. You are gracious. You love us. And Lord, you are our treasure. And may we trust in you always. Lord, may we turn to you when our plans disappear, when money is uncertain. Lord, you have control. Lord, may we follow your will. May we be people who are seeking your kingdom. We love you, and it's your name that we pray. Amen.